Hi, and welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that Really Good Enough Parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath. See your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. Today, I am looking forward to sharing with you my dear friend, Deb Margolin. Deb is a writer, performer, playwright, poet, teacher, and above all, a really good enough parent to two spectacularly creative and thoughtful humans, Bennett and Molly. In today's episode, you will hear Deb and lots of Deb. Throughout most of the following 60 minutes, I am sitting with my hands clasped in my lap or at my heart. I beam, I giggle, I nod, I tear up, and I don't say much. Deb is, among other things, a magical teller of tremendous tales, all true, of course. As with all my guests, I encourage you to follow up by reading the show notes. In Deb's case, I encourage you to do a deeper dive, watch her on YouTube, read some of her writings or plays if you're interested, follow her on Facebook, read her gorgeous daughter Molly's poems, and if you live in New Orleans, go check out Bennett Kirschner, Deb's ridiculously good-looking son. So with no further ado, I give you my friend Deb Margolin and her thoughts on being a really good enough parent. Welcome back to a really good enough parent podcast. I am over the moon, out of words, trying to tell you all how thrilled, excited, deeply moved I am to have the amazing Deb Margolin on as my guest today. You've heard me brag about her in the intro, and now you get to meet her in the true podcastness of it all. Welcome, Deb Margolin. Thank you. I paid her to say that, by the way. <laughs> It was worth the money. Friendship. Yes. Well, good. Um, I could go on, but instead <laughs> we're going to get right to the, the heart of the matter here. So Deb, I've known you for a gazillion years. I met you when you were an artist in residence at the University of Hawaii with the Split Bridges, where you wowed us all with how to get in touch with our inner writers. Um, and since then, I've followed you. You've done incredible things in New York City. Uh, plays that you've written and poems you've authored. And the reason you're on today is because you've also taken on the role of mother. And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, specifically, I came um, in direct contact with your mothering on a weird show that I watched recently. Oh, God. <laughs> and it, the idea that that is. The way I came to your attention as a parent is so funny. 
Well, it reminded me that I love you deeply. I, I mean, obviously, I've known you for a gazillion years, as I said, but watching you on network television or whatever we call it nowadays, streaming television on a show that shall not be named, um, calling the show itself demented to the cameras and the fact that they didn't edit that out, I thought was lovely. Um, but it just reminded me that you have so much to say on so many topics, and I wanted to share with our audience some of your thoughts on parenting. So. Usually we begin at the beginning, which is how you were born and raised, because I believe that how we're born and raised may either inform how we parent or may give us a direct departure point mm -hmm. um, if we decide to do something completely different from how we were raised. Yes. So the floor is yours, Deb Margolin. Well, you know, uh, I was born in New York, New York, and raised in Westchester by two very interesting people one of whom I've just lost, my beloved father, uh, after whom I've really kind of modeled myself morally and intellectually. My mom uh, was a very complicated person who didn't like me much. And my, my parents had very different languages in terms of how you showed yourself worthy of their love. My mother was would have liked a prom girl, a sort of cheerleader type. I was a nerd um, who read the dictionary and made phony phone calls for my social life, consisted of prank phone calls. Um, my dad valued greatly my intellectual striving, my musical passion. Uh, my mother found all of that nonsense to the point of being threatening. And I really worked hard for her love and really never quite felt like I had it. Um, I didn't really relax into who I was until I went to college. I went to NYU because my father was a professor there and was free. And when I got there, I realized people thought about books and bodies and music and um, philosophy and language in similar ways. Nothing really tipped me off to that. Um, until I got to college. Um, and, uh, you know, I um, met the person I married uh, my senior year of college. I saw him standing outside a, an English class. He didn't look that great, like his pants didn't fit good and his hair, like he had this ponytail, you just want to snip it off. It was too thin and I don't know. But something about him, I could tell he was inevitable. This is hard to describe. I just knew he was inevitable, and I went up to him. And the way that came out verbally was me saying to him, I know you. And he looked me up and down with barely concealed contempt. And he said, you don't know me. And that was the end of that for the moment. Never give up. I tried to get his attention the whole time. Everything I did annoyed him. The next semester, once again, we were paired up in a class led by a brilliant and bizarre professor, Floyd Zuli, whose philosophy of education was brilliant. He, um, he would interrupt his lecture. It was French literature and translation. He would interrupt his lecture by saying, is it weird? Yes. Is it strange? Of course. Is it bizarre? Definitely. And then he'd go on with the lecture. Or, Madame Casamasma, bad odor. I may smell, madam, but you stink. And then without any further reference, go on with it. He also believed that if you wanted to cut class, he would like to advise you as to the best way to spend your time. He would come out and advise you if you seemed on the fence. He also, if you seemed to be looking at someone else's paper during the exam, he'd come up and ask you what you needed to know for the exam. This was his philosophy of education. So... I was waiting outside Floyd's class, trying to figure out if I wanted to go, when, once again, this man, he saw me for the first time. I'm the type of person, for four months, you didn't see them until one day you did. It's still like that. Four months in, you look at me and see, oh, here's this weirdo. Ah, look at that, whatever that is. He looked at me and he saw me. And... Uh, he said, uh, want to go for coffee or something. It's like, okay. So we went for coffee and we did a crossword puzzle. Our knees touched. 
Then I called him up on the phone, and when he answered, it was A Love Supreme by John Coltrane playing. So I hung up, because that's like wedding music to me. So then I called back. He said, did you just call? I was like, no. And he said, can I come over? I was like, yeah. So he came over, and then I could tell he was going to kiss me, so just kissed him or whatever. Anyway, I knew him for 16 years before I married him. I was working with a theater company by this time. I fell into the theater. It was the right thing for me. I fell into the theater. Don't. It was just one of those things where life came and got me. That was the right place for me. I ended up on tour with Peggy Sean Lewis Weaver doing the eponymous Split Bridges play. We became the Split Bridges company. I was touring Europe. I didn't, I didn't finally, I knew his parents, his mother died. I went to the funeral with him and his brother and his father in this car. And when we got back to the funeral home, he asked me to marry him. I said, don't you think we should wait until you're thinking more clearly? It's like, no. So we made out in the women's bathroom or something. And then by, I was about to turn 36, was I? Like, I was an older person already? Like, no, I was a week away from my 37th birthday when we got married. Then one day he came to me and said, I didn't even move in with him because I was living in New York and performing there and he lived in New Jersey. Now I live in New Jersey. Please don't tell your friends. And so um, I, uh, he came to me and said, have my child one day. And that night I conceived Bennett, who you met at the University of Hawaii as a, as a baby in a carriage. He was 14 months old, I think, at that time. Now, when I gave birth to Bennett, when I saw him for the first time, I felt that he was born by cesarean section because he had the umbilical cord wrapped five times around his neck, and he prudently stayed there until they took him out. When I saw him, I, I felt this overwhelming feeling of relief. It was relief to have passed the baton. I can't even explain it. My husband, a non-demonstrative individual, had tears burst out of his eyes horizontally, like people escaping a nightclub on fire. His tears burst horizontally out of his eyes. This exquisite baby, look, you know, I, it's just, they got his good looks. I'm, I, you know, I'm a regular, I'm a plain woman, this baby was exquisite by anybody's standards. Now, people just say that. And I felt immediately a feeling, and it's excruciating to love someone in this new way. I was not a new person. I was a person who'd been around. I'd love people in lots of different ways. And it isn't this way for everyone. And it's not a should be or have to be. But I loved someone in a completely different way than I had ever loved a person before. I'd had lovers, I'd had dear friends, I'd had boyfriends, girlfriends, oh, whatever. I, I had loved my parents as best I could. But this was different. This was a different kind of love. It was molecular, it was profound, it was immutable, it was irremediable, and it hurt. It was so intense. Um... That's how I loved him. And I really got him. I knew him and we knew each other immediately. Neil would say, my husband would say, how do you know what he wants? I knew what he wanted. I knew what he wanted. I still know what he wants, even though that annoys him. He's 30 years old. I still know what he wants. It was, it was very profound. And, and um, I determined that I was going to love my children in a way that I myself was not loved. I've done many things in my life. The thing I'm proudest, proudest of is that I gave what I did not receive, which is unequivocal love. Nobody went to sleep wondering if I love them or not. I made sure, as I, yeah, I had a daughter after that. My daughter, I'll just say, I nursed my son until I got pregnant with my daughter, and then I had to say, look, you know, eat something else. Then I gestated her. Then 
I was determined to have a birth, a vaginal birth, because I, they had to cut him out due to his. So I was in natural childbirth. Everything great and terrible about that, just vocalizing in the shower. I spent a lot of time in water, just vocalizing. And then I told the midwife I was bored. So she said, ah, that's transition talking. When you're bored, you're ready to get the person out. Sure enough, 10 centimeters of dilation. Come on now. So I was evacuating my daughter as women do when the midwife went, ah! and I said, what? She said, you won't believe it. Of course you believe anything. That's like an altered condition. She said, she climbed back into your uterus. She used her hands and pushed herself back in there. Okay, they had to cut her out also. <laughs> so they, gave, they handed her to me, and she gave me a look that said, bitch, that's not what I felt like doing. I never saw such a fully formed individual in my life. She can still make that face, Christine. She can still make that face. She knows what I'm talking about. Anyway, thus began my raising these people. At a year and a month, she spit the nipple out. She's had enough. It's time to move on. She didn't walk because she didn't feel like it. She began talking at 10 months. She didn't feel like walking, so she didn't. When she felt like it, she got up and ran. Now I have these people, these incredible people. And I was determined that no matter what, no matter how difficult it was, no matter how dingy my life, no matter how much vomit I had on me, no matter how dirty the plates, how dingy the house, I was going to raise these people so they knew they were loved. And I would say every night, do you know that I love you, that I'd lay on the railroad tracks for you? Yes, mom, you already said that. Do you know, um, are you aware that I love you desperately? Yes, mom, we already discussed that. How's your childhood going? It's going fine. Is there anything missing? Do you need anything? No. Okay. Every day. And I have to tell you how much fun it was. Like in addition to being exhausting and grueling and endless, I had fun. My mother watched me playing with my children and she said, you seem to be enjoying your children with this weird look on her face. I said, yeah, it's a blast. We're, we are amusing each other. She said, I wasn't aware that I was enjoying my children. I said, then chances are you weren't, because one of the things that defines and characterizes enjoyment is awareness of it. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I could go on. I'm going to pause <laughs> for station identification. <laughs> I, I have been suppressing my joy and my love for you for the past. I'm trying to keep quiet so you can keep going. Um, everything you're saying is what I want to hear. Keep going, please. Well, when my sister was young, I invented this game called Ding-a-ling-a-ling-land. I just have to talk about Ding-a-ling-a-ling-land because I raised my sister in that land. She's six and a half years younger than I was. My older sister was 10 years older. There was 10 years between my older and younger sister. I'm a middle child. So I was in the middle. So they didn't grow up together, but I grew up with both of them. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-land was the land in which I raised my younger sister. She had a better childhood. I don't mind bragging about it. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-land was um, a land that was a telephonocracy. I'm going to brag about the fact that at the age of 10 years old, I prefigured and was prescient about corporatocracy, which is really the way the world works. Okay, the phone company, there was a king of Ding-a-ling-a-ling-land, but he was a figurehead. He was an old drunk who walked around and people threw stuff at him. The phone company ran the land and the entire constitution of the land was based on rules for using the phone. Okay, so there were certain very specific rules. For example, you couldn't just hang up on someone. You had to say goodbye. And if you did not, there, were, there was a machine. This was in the pre, I'm old. There was no computers. There was a machine that sensed that you had not said goodbye. And it would call your phone if you were the person who hung up without saying goodbye. And it would ring until you answered it and it would hang up on you. Okay. And it didn't matter if you could pull the phone out by the roots, you could douse it in peanut oil, set it on fire, and it would ring anyway until you answered it and were hung up on. In the event that the machine didn't work or that it had broken down for the day, there was a man 
whose job was to call the person who had been hung up on and allow them to hang up on him. His name was Pussy Pooper, and his sister was Party Pooper. His mother was Penelope Pooper, and his father was Pappy Pooper. Okay, Pussy was a very sad man, and he would call. There's a reason I'm telling you all this. And he would call you and start to tell you a story of great tragic dimension, and at the exact apex of the tragedy, you would be revenged, avenged by hanging up on him. Okay. And there were all these people in Dinglingland, and I was all the people except my sister, who was only herself. She was married to Ishkabibble Bubble, and he had 25 brothers, each of whose name began with the first letter. Like Bob Bubble was a butcher, Larry Bubble was a lawyer, and Ishkabibble Bubble worked for IBM. IBM. This is where okay. my sister, and when I had my own children, the game continued, but it developed whole new characters. Um, and they invented their own characters. Um, it became, Ishkabibble so and his crew sort of went the way of all flesh. And all these other people developed. There was Awasin, which my son played. Bennett played Awasin, who was a man capable of giving birth. Mm-hmm. His wife, Marie, had to nurse the people because he didn't have breasts. But he gave birth, Awasin was capable of pregnancy and birth. My daughter, who in all her outrage played this character, the manager. The manager was really scary and mean. Sounds like and a there were all these characters. Myrtle Schmidt. Myrtle was a, obsessed with the fact that she was fictional and um, very bitter about that. I mean, there was a whole panoply of characters, and we had those characters. There was also the bird stories. These were a series of nighttime stories that I told. Um, they were, it was a serial, the bird stories. It was a beautiful, beautiful serial. I, I will just say at this point that all of this deepened me as an artist profoundly. I wrote, I developed, um, lymphoma very early when my children were very young and I needed to address my cancer with my children in an age appropriate way. My cancer recurrences went on for 12 years and therefore spanned a long part of my children's life. Um, They were uh, six and four, perhaps, during the initial diagnosis of Hodgkin's disease, which is a disease of the lymph system. So I said, look, kids, you know, mom has this sickness and uh, I may, I'm going to get better, but I have to get this treatment. It may make my hair fall out. So I brought these crayons where you could write on my head they were so excited about that. They said, we don't care that you're bold. They, they couldn't hear the difference between bold and bold. They said, if you're bold, we'll draw great pictures on your head. As it turned out, I didn't, at that time, I, my hair got thin, but I didn't lose all my hair. Um, so we got through that period. Um, then it recurred. Um, and uh, by this time, they were older. Um, the, I answered all their questions in age-appropriate ways. We still continued to laugh our heads off. I should tell you that my son had this thing we called the death thing, where all of a sudden the image of death would come to him and horrify him. His image of death was of eternal consciousness with no sensation. Like if I locked you in the trunk of a car, it's all dark in there, drove it to a desert and left it there for eternity. So you were conscious, but there was no food, no life, no talk, no sense, no sound, no touch, nothing. That was what he thought death was. And this image would seize him unaccountably at moments, and he would call me. I could sense when he was getting the death thing. He would call me, Mom, I'm having the death thing, and I would have to rush home and deal with it. Meanwhile, as the cancer story progressed, and my children were developing greater and greater creativity and consciousness. Oh, there's something I left out that I want to tell you, but I'll get back to that. Um, I had to have a stem cell transplant. That sounds pleasant enough, but what a stem cell transplant actually is, is fatally high doses of chemotherapy from which you are bailed out, God willing, by stem cells. To say it is horrifying, I, I can't even... And what was interesting about that was my experience during 
the stem cell transplant itself, which was a month in the hospital, and the months that followed, that's what Ben's fear of death was. It was a living death, actually, because my mind, which is a very circus-like place to be, went off the air like a radio station. There was just nothing. People spoke to me. I didn't know what they were talking about. I couldn't see well. Someone said, you want to watch a movie? I'm like, no, no, thanks. I can't understand what the fuck a movie is. So I wrote a show called Eight Stops, which was about my son's fear of death and my actual experience during the stem cell transplant. And both those worlds coexist in this show. All this by way of saying parenting deepened me immeasurably. I was not half the man I am today. For those kids, the experience of having to give in that way, to love in that way, it is so painful and marvelous to love people that way. That is not everyone's experience. My mother found it annoying. Okay, And all feelings are welcome. I This is not prescriptive. It's just my experience. Oh, I have questions just for, but you wanted to get back to something and I don't want just you to Just one thing that. I want yes. to share. When, when Ben was five and Molly was three, Ben had said to me repeatedly, Mommy, when I was in your stomach, I knew everything. And when I came out, I was forced to forget it. He said that to me half a dozen times. One day he took it further. I went in his room. He's playing with his Power Ranger toys. And he said, Mom, the teacher said H2O is water. And when I was in your stomach, I knew that. And when I came out, I was forced to forget it. And before I was in your stomach, I was a boy and I went to school where all the boys wore the same thing. And then I was a man. And then God put me in your stomach because he wanted you to see me. And when I was that other person, Molly was my mother. Molly's my daughter. I just said, thank you so much. And I backed out of the room. Okay. I wrote everything he said down verbatim, which is why I could say it to you. Three weeks later, alone with my daughter, Molly, who had told me when she was two, Mommy, I'm never having babies. I said, that's okay. Whatever you want to do is fine. Now here we are. And she says, Mommy, when I'm Bennett's age, will I be a lady? I was like, no. She said, oh, Bennett's a little boy. I was like, that's right. She said, when I'm your age, will I be a lady? I said, yes. And she said, oh, goody, we'll both be mommies together. I said, oh, have you changed your mind? You decide you have babies? She said, well, we'll both be mommies together, but I won't have any babies because Bennett is my brother now. Okay, when, that's it. They, this, there was no religious education. There was no Buddhist education. There was no synagogue, no church. I was open to any spiritual idea you wanted to bring me, but I just, I'm just telling you, that's what was said to me. It, when they became adolescents, they just poo-pooed the whole thing. They said, that's a bunch of nonsense. We never said that. I'm telling you, that's what was said. Okay. You wrote it down. Now, that's, I just wanted to add that. I love all of that so much. I have so many questions. And here's why I have questions. Because I am imagining the people listening who are all like furiously writing down everything you're saying. Because it's all so beautiful and magical and memorable. And I'm a, a listener. And I'm curious about the mechanics of this parenting. I'm curious about a day in the life back then. So your husband, the amazing husband, I love the story. I love the 16 years of you going off and becoming something even bigger and more amazing. And, and then the day and the death and, and you came back together. And I do believe that who we meet at a young age is often uh, somebody that we shouldn't ignore for the rest of our lives in those moments. But um, you then became a parent because he said he wanted to put a baby in you and Bennett was waiting to come. What did it look like in the day to day for people wondering, how does this magic occur? Clearly you were gifted. You are gifted. Clearly your intentions to raise conscientious, creative, whole humans worked out pretty well because they're both pretty amazing adults. And hopefully we can touch on who they are later and who, what they're doing. Um, your husband had a job, a nine to five ish job. You're a creative Ish. person. You had a always on doing what you could when you mm -hmm. could job. That's correct. You're nodding. Um, 
what did it look like in the day-to-day for people who are worried about discipline, for people who are worried about rules, for people who are worried about structure? Let's talk about some of that. I found that the kids needed certain things to happen at certain times. Um, I was exhausted and I would, we would play games where you could lie down. Like all the games were played lying down. We also had dream hour where you went in a deeply creative private hour to imagine and create the kind of dreams you wanted to have that night. I, of course, used the time to go to sleep immediately. Um, There was a fair amount of going outside. Um, We were living in this horrifying complex where there was a pool so we could go and swim. Um, I realized during that period which was a period when I was trying to write where I was, um, I realized how much time I had because the revelation was that I was working all the time. Being a mother forced me to realize that the work was constant, that particularly as artists, our work is going on all the time. It doesn't just happen when you sit down to Do whatever it is God put you on earth to do. It's going on constantly. And this was the most joyous realization. At the same time, I would weep with exhaustion. I would get angry uh, when my husband didn't seem sometimes to understand how much I needed another pair of hands. Spending a whole day with two screaming people. I remember trying to take a job interview. Um... The baby was asleep. My daughter, Molly, was asleep down the way. We were four people living in a one-bedroom situation. And my son wanted my attention. Uh, He was two and a half or three, and he was annoyed that I was trying to have a job interview. And he began pulling his father's CDs down off the CD rack and stamping on them. The one time I used corporal punishment, I slapped his wrist because I didn't want to put the guy on hold. And he just was so shocked that had never happened. And it never happened after that. And he raised his head and started screaming, not even crying, just, ah! And the baby woke up and started crying and he was screaming. And the man said to him, look, miss, can you even do this job? And I said, you know what, sir, probably not. And I hung up. That was the job you did. <laughs> um, there were days of, of um, but at the end of the day, with the, with the food wilting in the plate, with the smell of whatever the day it held, I would put on this video called Extravagaria. It had no words. It was a Japanese video. I can't find it anymore. And what it did for all of us, it pulled the camera way back, and you could just see the universe You could see your own life. You could see your children's futures. You could see your own death and and welcome and understand it. You could thank God. And by God, I don't mean any religion or specific image. I just mean that the the gift of these two children, the exhaustion and frustration of of them not not having the agency that they yearned for and were not even ready for of my limitations as a human being, all of it fell into a graceful place with the music from this video. And then you put people to bed and like you had whatever that, however long that took. And by that time, who were you anyway? That's how those days were. Then I began teaching. And so I needed to get some help. And so somebody could take over. And there was the adventure of trying to find someone. One woman I tried to work with came and she was so exhausted by the time she got there walking from the bus, which was just that she needed an eight course meal, soup to nuts. The children are screaming by the time you serve the meal. Then I'd go teach. And one day I came home to find her sitting there. She told me she wanted to be a writer. This was so funny. And that my son had a magic marker and was writing on the leather chair in black magic marker. 
Okay. So there was that. <laughs> um, Not easy. You had someone who came to Hawaii with you who was lovely. That was Cruz. Okay. Cruz worked with us for years. Cruz and I worked together for years. Cruz was like another mother figure. Cruz Irizarry was a gift. She was so beautiful. She loved, when I was pregnant with my daughter and she had fallen in love with Bennett, but she's like, I'm having nothing to do with this other one. I'm only here to take care of this one. It's like, okay, that's fine. Once the other one came, she just loved her. And we had the whole thing. When we moved, she actually came and lived with us for a year and helped. Lovely. I mean, Cruz, I love her and miss her. You knew her. I'm so grateful for that. Mm. Cruz, there's no one like her. She was like a family member. You could see she, she was had part that of our family ownership of the kids that was yes. really powerful. Mm -hmm. So for for sort of zooming in and understanding this beautiful chaos of magical creativity and loving energy that you just so tirelessly worked through with the kids, I'm picturing your husband, who's a lovely man maybe on the periphery because for a variety of reasons, yeah, good just, men wired differently, didn't yeah. quite have the buy-in or the sort of spiritual understanding of what this really is about when you carry a human in your body and then you uh, try and raise them. Um, but he was a loving, supportive guy. But I'm also getting the sense, or is, that you um, accepted, because I think often in when we try and raise kids and there's a marriage and there, or there are two people, whatever kind of, you know, deal that looks like, if there's more than one person trying to raise the kids often that second person, if they're not feeling the same level of connection becomes a problem. It was a problem. I mean, I, I could have used that kind of energy from him and I didn't get it. Um, he was supportive in other ways. Um, but uh, all the, the, the kids today now have a word for it, emotional labor. That word is so helpful. I didn't have a word for that. The emotional labor accrued to me solely. And I would rather have shared that. That said, there were other contributions that he made. Like he would take the kids on horrifying adventures that I was not interested in. The horrifying adventure department. Mm -mm. So he had that territory. There were days of when she was playing soccer and she, Molly was fearless and she was the goalie because she just give the girl such a look that the girl would like, never mind. Not We're not that. an athletic group of people, but Molly was so horrifying that the people would just not shoot on the goal because she gave them the look she gave me when she was born. She can still make that face. I could send you a picture of it. You know what? On the show that we shall not name, she was talking to your son's future in-laws. And oh, yeah. she, uh, she told them, you know, my brother doesn't want to have kids. Are you aware of this? You know, yes. you could just see that the, the delight you could she see got that. delivering that message. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, my son's very open to having kids. But, yes. you know. I'll correct the record. Yes. Um, but, you know, she wanted, she was dressed, she dressed people down she as a, at a as a four-year-old Bennett was six and we were at the Port Authority bus terminal and Bennett was running to get on the wrong bus and so I let a door shut on her and she put her hands on her hips in front of rush hour commuters and she says you have two children not one you've let my brother go to on the wrong bus and you've slammed the door on me I mean the commuters were shocked. I'm being addressed about my parenting by a four-year-old. This, it was so wild. She really, I mean, having told me that she was his mother previously, she was very bossy about the way I parented him. She said, you brought this for me. What have you done for my brother? Has he eaten? What has he eaten? Cookies? Like, she was very bossy. So here's the point about the, your kids that I think is so crucial. One of the most, in my mind, one of the most important things we can do as a parent is to be curious about 
and to embrace what our children bring. And That's right. my concern is that very often parents don't know that they need to be curious. They don't realize that this is a human being they should want to get to know. And that's where a lot of the conflict starts is they believe it should be a mini me and they forget what it's like to be a child and have all this rambunctious, chaotic behavior and curiosity. And they just shut that down. But I think everything you're saying, one of the reasons I love you so much is that you understand that each human being, specifically your children, need to be investigated and we should be curious and we should embrace and support who they are because to do anything short of that creates an unnecessary conflict. Absolutely. And I mean, it's so hard to be a child. I have such compassion for the work of being a child, the lack of agency that a child must a child's dignity must be allowed to survive their lack of agency. And finding, feeling the compassion, the hard work even that a baby is doing. A baby just got out. They're like, what the fuck? You know, they, they're hungry. They're, they, they, it's, it's, it, they don't know what. They, the air on their skin. How can they sleep? What does it mean? You know, I felt such inordinate compassion, having struggled so much as a child, having been so humiliated by my lack of agency. I really wanted to do everything I could to make it possible for them to grow and experience their dignity and their integrity, despite a lack of agency in the way and to increase their agency as much as possible. Um, I so appreciate your, your saying that because people are weird. People are who they are. I mean, the, I, the minute these people became evident to me, having come out of my body, I already knew certain aspects of them from the way they behaved. And then they came out and certain of their gestures I recognized from having come from inside me, ah, that's what he was doing. And, and, and realizing that these people um, are completely different entities. And my job is to serve them uh, as they become themselves, to help them develop the, a sense of themselves without my living through them without my telling them who they were, but still I felt a need to let them know that there was something, someone running the room. Little kids do not want to feel like there's no one running the room. That burdens them. It is a burden to a child to feel like you are not in charge of the room. And there's a fine At the same line. Time, um, yes. They are free um, to, I, I did have certain, there were, Whining, I, I would say, could you please adjust your voice? I cannot hear you when you speak like that. Please adjust your voice. Um, there was a rule of kindness and respect at all times. You can be angry. Yes, you can hate me even. You can be angry, but you must treat me with respect at all times. You must treat yourself with respect at all times. Kindness and respect at all times. Anger, sure. Rage, sorrow, Whatever you feel is welcome, kindness and respect at all times. So th there were definite rules. Um, and I felt like it was very important as a parent that I establish not a sense that I was out of control and, oh, my God, and please take care of me as I faint with exhaustion and frustration because you screamed all day. Like, I never wanted people to feel like they had to take care of me. I distinctly remember a feeling that my parents were insane and that I had to take care of them or they would die. And then what would happen to me? Mm. My parents were people who could never say, I'm sorry. They could never apologize. They were, there was a philosophy of parenting that said, you never admit you're wrong. Admitting I was wrong was relaxing for them. I'm sorry, dear. I didn't see it there. I'm so sorry. That is actually relaxing. I thought they were insane. So I thought, oh my God, if my parents 
are so fragile, I better be a very good girl or, or they'll die. And then who will feed me Cheerios? I never wanted to seem fragile. I wanted to say something, sorry, even when you had the lymphoma. Even when I had cancer, I didn't want to seem fragile. We played, we we had such fun. We did donut drops. If somebody hurt our feelings, we would donut drop them. Um, Donut dropping was a great way of expressing ourselves. We would ditch doorbells with Dunkin' Donuts and we'd play a certain music. I would hide her in the car around the corner. They would drop the donuts, ditch the doorbell, and run back to the car so that by the time that kid even finished masturbating and came to the door, there was nothing but a bunch of donuts. The donut drop was a major ritual. We had a lot of ways of dealing with life. Okay, quickly. I want to get back to, and I, I think I need to hear more about the donut drop, but I'm a little afraid to. But but <laughs> here's where a lot of parents, I think, run into trouble is the idea that you mentioned that children need to know there's somebody in control. There's somebody taking care of business. There's mm-hmm. somebody there creating the safe structure for them to work within to develop and become who they are. And I think mm-hmm. the subtlety of that is really important because for some parents, the easy way through that is top-down authoritarian, do what I say, kind of parenting. And you're saying you create the sort of safe space where you're the, you're the structure. And within that space, they can be as chaotic and free as they want. I just wanted to sort of clarify that really important point. I think that is really important. Thank you. I'm also so curious because I, as I said earlier, I think often what happens is that children grow up in conflicted relationships when the parents regardless of who that looks like, who they are. It doesn't have to be a heterosis gendered man and woman, but two parents who are not equally invested. One parent starts to feel the burden, the emotional work um, becomes, you know, all encompassing. And, and I like the idea that we don't want to burden our children with the awareness of our struggle but we also want to be as transparent and you've used this term, which I love age appropriate. Cause I think so many parents don't modulate that and then burden their children with the news they feel compelled to deliver. Um, but to the point of the relationship and the importance of the relationship of the two parents, if there are two parents, because children, if they're watching that struggle, take that personally mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. becomes a cancer of sorts in them that they will have to work out at some point, Mm -hmm. hopefully. Um, So if you could say anything more about that, because you did credit your wonderful husband with the things he was able to do successfully, like the crazy adventures or the dangerous adventures. Um, But at some point you must have in your mind said, okay, this is what it is. I'm carrying the full emotional work. And he can contribute what he can, and I'm going to be okay with that? Or did how did you wrestle with and then figure that part out? It, 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 it remains a tender place. Um, it remains a tender place. I don't think um, anything about that disequality seemed very particular to the kids until they became conscious young adults themselves when they came to consciousness about that. And I acknowledge that I feel and felt and still feel a certain embarrassment about that. One day my daughter said to me, and this is very painful for me to acknowledge. My daughter said to me, you're a bad role model for love. You're a bad love role model. She said that to slap me. She said that because she knew that that would awaken me to some aspect of what she felt I deserved and was not getting in my relationship. Of course, she does not understand my relationship completely. How could she? Um, Everything, those things that are great and terrible about my relationship with her dad, uh, she doesn't have to... I don't have to explain those things to her. Um, I know that the the fact that I did most of that work, that was felt by them. It was felt by them. Um, My daughter is 
joyously, happily married to a wonderful guy who is the exact perfect guy for her, I will just say. So from my poor role modeling for love, she's done brilliantly well for herself. My son is still seeking his ideal person. He thought he found that person, but alas, etc. Um, I think it is something. It's, it's an aspect. It was a disequality that I am sorry about. I am sorry about it. And I'm not sure anything can be done about it, though. That's my point, is that I'm I'm almost thinking the way through it is for, and it's not always the woman, but usually it is. And I said previously something about giving birth, and I just want to note that obviously as a mother of children who I adopted and inherited through marriage and gave birth to all, uh, and I love them all with an intensity that is at many times Isn't it breathtaking? Isn't it breathtaking? It is everything. And, and it is equal, although different, the, but the, the severity of the love, the intensity of it is the same, regardless of how the child came into my life. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that emotional burden that I carry um, as the mother in a traditional marriage is something I'm very aware of. Yes. Um, and, and I guess it, that, it almost feels like a cop-out, but I'm inclined to consider the position that maybe if you are that person in the relationship raising kids who does have awareness that you're carrying the emotional burden, maybe there's not much to be done about it. Because I don't know that talking or any kind of mind shifting can take place. It feels like an innate state you bring. There is when someone, I mean, you have children by marriage, you have adopted children, and you have given birth to children. I cannot speak to several of those things because I haven't experienced them. But I can say that when someone comes out of your body, there is, this is like, it's, it, I seek language for how profound that is. The person comes out of your body, and there they are. So Oh my God, it's just, there's the, I, you know, I, I had my second child at 40 going on 41. I had been through many things. Nothing prepared me for the kind of love that I would feel. And it just gets worse and worse, deeper and deeper, more and more beautiful as time goes on. The, as, as a person, the mother of, I had an exit interview with the kids. I was like, I'm doing a maternal exit interview. Now I'm always your mother. I will always love you. I will worry about you on my deathbed. Okay. But I would like to do an exit interview. Like, how did it go? Like, if I come back in another life, like, what did I do right and wrong? I had a, when my son had very little, uh, he's like, things went well, you know, I think things went well. You know, sometimes you were a little overbearing or you came a little close, but basically things went well. My daughter had a ton of things. Well, you could have, she does still talk in a high-pitched voice. You couldn't, well, I love you, mom. You're a great mother, wonderful mother, but this and this and this. Okay, all right, that's good. Um, Any specifics that you can share? That um, things, that, okay, with or without her criticism. Say, I, I, I have it written. I wrote it down. I don't have the list here. She had a list of complaints, like I made her wear this coat or whatever, you know. Um, but uh, I think basically things went okay. That I would ask them every day, how's your childhood going? Is there something missing here? What do you need? How's it going? Mom, you already said that. Like, <laughs> we laughed a lot. We had a lot of, we laughed a lot. I, it's, it's the most overwhelming. It's the thing I'm proudest of. The thing I'm still enthralled to. I love my teaching. I teach, I'm a professor of theater. I am a playwright. I am also a, a performer. Um, and I am a mother. And the th when I made mistakes in any of these areas, the thing that hurt me most was the mistakes I would make on a given day as a parent. When I said something that was not helpful, when I yelled, when I lost my temper because I was exhausted or because you just fill in the blank, whatever you did, or the, 
My failures in moments as a parent always bothered me more than a bad show, than a class that was less than perfect. Similarly, the joy I felt in my life was magnified by an order of magnitude by the joy I felt as a parent. And also that I built a life where it was a portfolio of possible happinesses. So if I had a bad day on, if I had a bad show that, then I, my kids delighted me the next day. Or if my kids were on my last nerve, then my class went great. Or like there was always a source of joy because of the concentric circles around which my life was built. Or if, if all of it went to hell, my husband and I had great sex. Or there was always something that I could get joy from. And, and that helped me in all the areas to get joy from one of them. I will say the most significant source of joy, the hardest thing I ever did, was parent these people. Your joy is palpable. It's one of the first things I felt about you when I met you a gazillion years ago. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that your husband called you up and said, come, let me put a baby in you because mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like- He didn't call like me up. He was right there. He came right up to me and said that. I was like, okay, forget the diaphragm or whatever. I was, it's just... And I got pregnant that night. I conceived. He was on a business trip. I called him up two weeks later, two and a half weeks. Like he said, he said, you have to be kidding. No, no. -uh. Care for what you wish for. Ben, it was meant came to came out of the shower and looked at my body. I said, I'll see ya. See ya. It came back. Yes. You've always had a, a lovely body. If I do say so. Thank um, you, dear. That's very kind. Someone paid you to say so. <laughs> We're almost out of time. I um, would like to talk to you for the next three weeks without break, but that would not be smart. Um, I feel we could learn so much from you, but this has been a nice little teaser. I will advise folks to look up your deepness and greatness with the show notes where I'll have your plays, your contact, your all your amazing things. Um, I, I assume some of your shows have been recorded and are now available on YouTube. Do you have anything that you're working on right now that people can look forward to seeing reading? I'm excited about a new play I've written called This Is Not a Time of Peace. It's a play about unrest. It's a play about my father's, my father recently died and I am grieving him. He was my dearest, dearest, dearest friend. He um, was, he had his security clearance taken in, during the McCarthy era. And it's a play about the love between a father and a daughter. The father struggled to late in his life to come to terms with recurring horror about that, as well as the daughter's acts of betrayal in her own life. Even if she's angry at Joe McCarthy for betraying the American people, she she is forced to face the fact that she too is capable of betrayal. It's a play about unrest and love. Um, and that is going up uh, in New York uh, at the beginning of this coming year of 2024, not to rush this year because it's the summer lies before us like a land of dreams, but I'm excited about that play. I'm still editing it. It is slated for opening uh, in February. Good. We'll put some information about that. And I'll your, you um, about that. your Ponzi scheme play was the last really big one that I'm aware of. And Imagining Madoff. And there was eight stops. I'm going to, eight stops was my show about my son's fear of death and my experience of a living death. And it's funny as fuck. I'm sorry. Excuse my cursing. I this really apologize. It's show. Me. It's okay. It's, it's see, Comedy is everything. Comedy, you can get, comedy is everything. The show is really funny. Oh, yes, it's about cancer. Yes, it's about my son's fear of death. And we it, people laugh their heads off. It's really funny. Um, that show, my whole heart, my whole heart. I still have the child's rocking chair that I'm looking at across the room. I can't bring myself to throw that prop out. 
um, because my son was on stage in my mind, sitting in that chair in this little rocking chair. Um, there were stuffed animals everywhere. Um, you know, I don't know. Anyway, eight and stops. Okay, and there's been a new, <clears throat> excuse me, some documentary or something, Split Bridges, I saw the other day. Oh, that, no, it, that's that. There's a woman working on a documentary about, wow, um, the the theater that Split Bridges founded to host women's work. Um, and she's working on that documentary. Um, so I posted that because I'm going to need some of those images because I'm going on some national endowment for the humanities thing where I have to talk about split bridges. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's what's coming up next. Also, my daughter and I are working on a show together. Got to do a show with this kid. This kid is so funny. My daughter is a laugh riot. And her poetry um, is not so bad also. Her poetry is so startling. Oh my God. She's also extremely funny and very, very quick witted. I can't keep up, you know, it, and so we've decided to do a show together. We're kicking around stuff, ideas. All right. And before we end, Bennett, any updates on Bennett that are worth sharing? Bennett is the founder of Intramural Theater Company. Intramural is an incredible company. He's a founding director. He's a young man who makes things happen. Um, he just recently closed a one-act festival. Um, he uh, is has a master's uh, in playwriting. He is a director uh, whose great strength is visual. He really understands space and how to place bodies in space. He is, the, he suffers from the grief of endless compassion. I called the Eight Stop Show a comedy about concerning the grief of endless compassion. My son would apologize to things for throwing them in the garbage. He would hold a bird in his hand that it hit the window until it felt safe enough to fly. He is an animal whisperer. He is so handsome. Ladies out there. I mean, I'm serious, ladies. Yeah. He's Check him out. Special, special, special man. He really yeah. is. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure the right person will show up at the right time. That's just right. Has a little readiness more... is all, as Hamlet said. And for anyone concerned about your health, you're doing fine. You look glorious. I'm doing fine. Yeah, that was 15 years ago, the stem cell transplant. And here I am blabbing away. Thank you, for Christine, for the pleasure of your company, for anyone who's put up with me. Thank you for the honor of listening and wishing everyone uh, the greatest ease of spirit in the incredible act of parenting. It is a generosity like no other. Thank it you, is Deb original Margolin. in every person's life. Thank you. This has been amazing. I'm so grateful you gave me this time. And there will be more information about you in the show notes. I wish you everything. And good luck with the February New York play. And love Thank to you. you. Love to you, always. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. This has been another episode of a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about a Really Good Enough Parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.